Please take your Bibles, your copy of God's Holy Word, and open it to Matthew, the 16th chapter, 21st verse. One verse will comprise the portion of text from which the sermon will come this morning, Matthew chapter 16 and verse 21. Listen again to God's Word. From that time, Jesus began to show His disciples that He must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes, and be killed, and on the third day be raised. May God add His blessing to the reading of His Word. Beloved, there's a context here to the passage of Scripture that I just read to you, and it fits within the entire scope of the Word of God and redemptive history. The Bible that you hold in your hand is one story. It is one book. It is comprised of many covenants that God has made with His people. It begins in the garden and it ends in a new garden. It begins with creation and it ends with a new creation. It begins with the first Adam and as a result of the coming of the second Adam, there will be a return of that second Adam where we are able to receive all of the glory and all of the promises and all of the inheritance that He intended for His people. Throughout this one story, there is a thread that runs through all of it, and that is the promise that God made to Himself to redeem for Himself a people. That promise is what the writer of the Hebrews calls the eternal covenant. It is the promise that He would one day send His own Son in order that He might represent fallen humanity, perfectly live out the requirements of the law, and then die as the very embodiment of the curse that had been called upon those who had disobeyed His law, so that He could fully and completely pay every bit of the debt of the penalty that was incurred by every single person who has ever lived, who would be called to Him in faith, and could grant to those who believe in Him for salvation, the holy righteousness that was His through His active and His passive obedience. And Matthew writes his gospel, his story of Jesus' life as a way of really kickstarting the, the new revelation that has come after a 400-year period of silence and the closing of what we call the Old Testament. In fact, in the covenant that the people had in the time of the Jews, their concept of God's Word would have begun with the Torah, the five books of Moses, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, and it would have ended uh, with some of these historical books, 
Specifically, what we have is the book of Chronicles. It was just one large scroll, and it ended their version of the Old Covenant. The same 39 books we have in our Bible, but they just had it organized slightly differently. And that book at the end began with a genealogy, and therefore the writers of the new covenant, of the New Testament revelation of God, after his new covenant was given through Christ, began with a genealogy, and that's what you have in Matthew. And Matthew was writing to the Jews to help them understand that this Jesus whom they killed is in fact the Messiah, that he is the promised one. And they want to see that he is the king of the Jews. And so one of the things that he does throughout his entire gospel is that he brings them back to this reality. And in the immediate context of what we'll look at this morning, that revelation has just dawned on one of the leaders of the disciples, a man named Peter. Peter, as you'll know, was one of those disciples who was never afraid to speak his mind. And so Jesus says to his disciples in this very chapter, who do you think that I am? And Peter, in one of his really great moments, because God himself reveals this to him, says to Jesus that you are the Messiah. You are the Son of God. You are the promised one. And Jesus says to him, you're right. Flesh and blood hasn't revealed this to you. You didn't understand this on your own. But like any person who comes to a true knowledge of God, it's because God brings that knowledge to them. And so he commends when he says, yes, well done. But then interestingly enough, he says to his disciples, now don't tell anyone. What an interesting response. Don't tell anyone. You know why? Because he knew that he was coming into a situation where people had very high political ambitions and political aspirations. They were waiting for a Messiah, not the kind of Messiah that God was going to send. They were waiting for a Messiah who would be their political liberators from the oppression of the government. Now, this is a trend that's carried on for 2,000 years where people associate Christianity with some sort of liberation from political issues. But you see, it began not with us. It began a long time ago. And Jesus says, don't let them know that lest they get confused, lest they think that I'm here to deliver them from Rome. Now, interestingly enough, word did get out. And by the time Jesus came into Jerusalem, the week before he was crucified, what is oftentimes called Palm Sunday, the people were gathered and they were ready for him. And they threw down the palm branches. They threw down their cloaks. And they said, Hosanna, Hosanna. And it appeared to be some sort of celebration, like they believe, here he is, the Messiah. And on one level, they did believe that he was the Messiah. The problem was they believed he was exactly the kind of Messiah that Jesus said they would think that he was and caused him to tell the disciples to stay quiet about it. You see, they just wanted him to come and overthrow Rome. This is why we don't celebrate Palm Sunday here, because Palm Sunday was not a celebration, literally, of Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the true Son of God. It was a farce. The very same ones who were crying, Hosanna, Hosanna, at the end of the week were crying, crucify Him, crucify Him, because nothing will change people's impressions about you quicker than disappointing them that you're not going to provide them with the political liberation they elected you for. You see, Jesus went from being this Savior in their mind 
to being a scandal, and that was all part of God's plan. And so when Jesus says to his disciples, you are correct that I am the Son of God, I am the Messiah, I am the one who will come, you need to be careful to understand what that means. That's why in verse 21 of Matthew 16, it is from that point forward that Jesus shows the disciples what it really means to be the Messiah. The that point forward, the that time onward, is the time when the disciples realized He really was the Son of God. Immediately the story changes. Immediately the gospel pivots. Immediately the story begins to give a whole different hue as we realize that now there's an intentional desire on Jesus' part to clarify for them what it really means for Him to come. It was not to rule and reign in His first appearance. It was actually to be cursed and crucified. Now, let's look more carefully at the text. Peter's statement is what formulates all of this, and so Jesus says to them, from that time he began to show his disciples. What does it mean to show? Wouldn't it be just as easy to say that Jesus began to tell his disciples? Jesus began to lecture his disciples. You know, Jesus began to preach sermons to his disciples. No, it says he showed them. He lived it out. Everything that he did was to demonstrate that he was not what the people thought he was going to be. I, I love this story in Luke where Jesus stands up in the synagogue and he reads a portion of Isaiah and he says that in your hearing this has been fulfilled and the people are really excited because it sounds like he's the Messiah and then he reminds them that when the prophets were sent, they were sent to the poor and to the Gentiles, to the poor, and to the immigrants, and the aliens. And the Jewish people go from celebrating him to turning on him and trying to throw him off a cliff. They didn't want that kind of Messiah. They wanted somebody who would come to validate their self-righteousness, to pat them on the head and tell them how wonderful they were in all the good deeds they were performing. What faithful little Jews they were. They went through all the ceremonials, ceremonies and rites and, and rituals and fasting and, and tithing and all the stuff they did. Oh, good for you. You're just the kind of people that I came to save. And Jesus came preaching the opposite message. He said, I'm not coming here to save those kinds of people. Why? Because I'm like a physician that comes to heal the sick, not the people who think they're well. And my greatest appeal to you this morning, friends, is God forbid that you're assembled here because you think you're already well. Grew up in a Christian home. You went through all the little Christian rituals. You got all the little badges and ribbons. Perfect Sunday school attendance. Come to church every Sunday. Faithfully tithe. Do all the outward external things. You don't do all the things Christians aren't supposed to do. And yet at the end of the day, there's not a genuine conversion. May we all understand how sick we really are and how much desperately we need the grace and mercy and love of a Savior who comes for just those kinds of people. May God forbid that we ever be known as a place that is only welcoming to those who look really good on the outside and cleaned up, but rather as a place where those who realize their desperate need for a Savior 
come and hear the message that he has said, which is, come to me, you who are weak and heavy laden, and I will give you what? Rest. May this be a place of rest. He doesn't say, come to me and I'll give you a new set of laws to live by. Come to me and I'll give you rest from that because I've done it for you. You see, Easter is a celebration of those who were most desperate, seeing in the face of their Savior the resurrection promise that one day all will be made right. Everything that's hurting you right now, all the pain you're suffering, all the losses you've endured, all the confusion that racks your mind, all of the providences that were dark and difficult, all of the losses, everything that is a result of the curse in which we live as cursed people on a cursed earth will all one day be reversed and glorified in the resurrection And we will somehow, in some way, see all of it through the lens of God's divine providence and His kindness, and it will actually turn into something for which we give Him glory and rejoice forever. That's your hope today. Brothers and sisters, if you're in Christ, that's your hope today. And I just want that to cascade over you in just a waterfall of peace. The greatness of the glory of the resurrection is the hope that one day we too will be resurrected. But that couldn't happen unless first there was a cost that was to be paid, a penalty to be paid. And so notice that it was really Jesus' teaching of his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem. That word must is important. It's an absolute necessity. The word must in the English language doesn't really cut it. It was absolute necessity. There was no other way. Satan tried on numerous occasions to get Jesus to accomplish something some other way. The person most opposed to Jesus setting his face towards Jerusalem, as it says in Luke 9.51, was Satan. That's why when Peter, a little while after this verse, and you know Peter, he can't say anything really good without following it up with something really stupid. Tells Jesus, no, 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 he takes Jesus aside, which is good. You don't want to rebuke Jesus in public. You know, Peter's very careful about how he does this, very respectful. Pulls Jesus aside and says, "Um, (laughs) that can't happen. You're you're not going to die. And Jesus says, get behind me. Who? Satan. You know, you don't want to be called Satan. You don't want to be called Satan by anybody, but much less by Jesus. Here's Peter, he's all proud of himself, like, yeah, guess who nailed it? You're the Messiah. That's right. Five minutes later, get behind me, Satan. (laughs) You see, he didn't understand. The people who want to get in the way of Jesus going to Jerusalem are the people that are doing the works of Satan. Satan didn't care if Jesus got killed. Satan cared if Jesus got crucified. And that could only happen through what was going to go on in Jerusalem. But Jerusalem's an interesting place. Jerusalem is a city that has been the center point of many of the covenants. It was Jerusalem that Melchizedek was the king of. Remember him? The king of Salem, the king of Jerusalem. He's the one who in Genesis 14, 18, meets Abraham after he has defeated the kings. And he sets bread and wine before him. And Abraham gives him a tenth of everything as a tithe. Melchizedek was a priest of God. 
Long before there were any priests in the Old Testament, long before there were any Levites, long before there was Levi from whom the Levites came. You see, he was an eternal priest, the very same kind of priest that Jesus is. It was also that very same region in Jerusalem where Mount Moriah is, and that was where Abraham was told to take his son Isaac in Genesis 22 too, and to kill him as a sacrifice. It was also the place that David captured from the Jebusites, from the people who lived there in 2 Samuel 5, and he made it the city of David. It was into that city of David that the new David would go. It's from Jerusalem that Jesus would ascend. It is to Jerusalem that Jesus will return. In fact, on the new earth, it will be a new Jerusalem illuminated by the very glory of Christ that will come down. That 15-acre original plot of ground around the Gahon Spring, it's not really holy ground, but it's certainly covenantal ground. It's a piece of real estate that God has set apart as the stage on which so many of the infinitely important arrangements between him and humanity have been executed. It was to there that Jesus says, I have to go to that place. The son of David, the greater David, will go and notice it, he will suffer many things. You see, he wasn't deceived by the false praise that he received when he got there. He wasn't deceived by Palm Sunday. Jesus knew what was going on. Jesus, in fact, made a mockery of it. Jesus made a mockery of Palm Sunday. How? By riding in on a pitiful little donkey. By riding in as anything but a champion. You see, in those days, the leader was expected to ride in in military victory, flanked by soldiers, dragging his enemies behind him, declaring up front that he is coming in order to take over everything that he sees around him. And Jesus comes in, sandals barely above the ground, on a rickety little baby donkey. Imagine if the President of the United States showed up in a rusty smart car. Like, what's this? There is no presidential Prius. Show up in something that's befitting of the dignity of the office. Jesus says, I'm going to show you how wrong you've got it. I'm not what you're looking for. And so when he says he suffers many things, he suffers at the beginning in the humiliation, and that will continue through all the way until the end when those same fickle followers are screaming, crucify him, crucify him. He was going to suffer outside the city, as Hebrews 13, 12 says. He's going to suffer outside the city. He will be crushed by his father in fulfillment of Isaiah 53. But most importantly, he will be cursed. Don't miss that. He will be cursed. And he will become the curse. If you go back into Deuteronomy chapter 21, verses 22 and 23, you will see there that it was given to the Jews the right to execute some of their own people. But like any proper use of capital punishment, 
It was highly regulated, and it was based only upon absolutely verifiable cause. There is no such thing as just execution unless it fits within the highly regulated structure of the government and is just based on undeniable proof that the person is guilty. But if such a person were to be convicted in Jewish law, they were allowed to be killed, not any way you wanted. In fact, some of the examples are stoning. At the original giving of the law, if you had gone up on the mountain, you could have been shot through with an arrow. But no matter how they were killed, if it was meant to set them apart as being exceptionally wicked, exceptionally depraved, exceptionally cursed, as it were, they would take that dead body and they would ram it through with usually a stake of some kind, a large wooden pole, and then they would hang that body up on the pole. Or they would take that body and they would hang it on the city gates. And that was meant to be as humiliating as possible. Not only were we killing the person, but we were desecrating their dead body. It was meant to serve as a warning, but though God permitted it, He said, you must take that body down at the end of the day and bury it. Because even the human body is something that God created and has dignity. But the hanging of the body was the sign of the ultimate curse. This is why back in Numbers 21, the snake was put up on the pole. Remember the bronze serpent? You see, the bronze serpent represented the serpent, represented the curse. The serpents were the ones who, because of the people's violation of the covenantal restrictions, that God had set there in their relationship. The the serpents had come in. They were biting the people. The people were dying. God brings deliverance. And so the serpent is put up on the pole because God crushed the serpent who was crushing the people. The serpent then is the one that represents the fact that God has put an end to the curse. And then when you look to that bronze serpent, and Jesus had to remind Nicodemus of this, When the people looked to that serpent, they were healed. The serpent didn't heal them. The serpent was a sign that the serpent had been crushed. God healed them. And that's why Jesus says during that late night dark alley conversation with Nicodemus that when I am lifted up, I'll draw people to myself. He says, I'm that curse. Cursed is the one who hangs on a tree. I'm going to suffer. I'm going to hang on a tree. I'm going to become the curse. The Father is going to crush me and destroy me in order that those who put their faith in me will never be destroyed. It's all part of the suffering, folks. And so he says that I'm going to go there and I'm going to suffer it. And I'm going to suffer it from two groups of people. Notice from the elders and the chief priests and the scribes, that's the first group. You see, his death was a Jewish plot. And that Jewish plot was crafted by the religious leaders. It's hard to imagine anybody who is more deeply offended by competition than Jewish religious leaders, except maybe contemporary religious leaders. You see, religious leaders seem to be inherently jealous. Religious leaders, for whatever reason, seem to be inherently insecure. They seem to be very obsessed with their following, with their crowd, with their people. Uh, They seem to want to control a group of individuals draw them to themselves because of their charismatic personality, and draw themselves 
a group of people because they promise them something no one else can promise them, a special word from God. Whenever someone gives you a special word from God, we have a word for that. It's called a cult. Whenever a pastor tells you that he holds ultimate authority because he has ultimate authority over the interpretation of God's word, you've also got a cult. You see, God's word stands on its own and its own authority, and it is simply our responsibility to clearly communicate it, to love it, and to submit to it. But these religious leaders, they thought they had sort of curbed the market on all things that people would want. And so when Jesus came, he was a threat to them because when he preached, even the people said, no one preaches like him. He preaches with authority and with integrity. Jesus was an actual preacher of the gospel. And so as a result, the Jews hated him. They convicted him of blasphemy falsely in Matthew 26. You can read that later in this same gospel from 57 to 67. They falsely accused and convicted him of blasphemy by dragging in those who were willing to state something that wasn't true. But you know, that wasn't enough. Just think about this for a moment. The Jews could have killed him. They'd tried numerous times before. They tried throwing him off a cliff. Uh, They tried stoning him. Uh, I'm sure that somebody would have been very happy to hire an assassin to get up close and stab him with a knife. There was lots of ways they could have killed him. But killing him wasn't enough. (laughs) You see, justice and integrity demand restitution. They demand what is legally just. But hatred demands destruction. Only hatred demands destruction. Justice is never enough for the person who hates. They have to utterly and completely destroy. And the Jews hated Jesus so much that they needed to utterly and completely destroy him. And the only way for them to completely destroy him was to make sure that he was crucified. Because if he was crucified, even the common people, even the common Jewish people would know that he wasn't really the Messiah because no Messiah could have been crucified. No Messiah could have been crucified because to be crucified is to be cursed, and nobody who is cursed could be the Messiah. Do you see the logic? That was kind of their syllogism for understanding this. If he is crucified, that guarantees that he is not the Messiah. And so the religious leaders had to find a way to get him crucified. And so for them to get him crucified, they had to find a partner. And it's usually the case, if you can find somebody that you hate and find someone else who hates that same person, you can form a coalition. And it's usually political, and that's exactly what happened here. Notice, they found some people to collaborate with. It was the Roman authorities. It was the Gentiles. And so, because they knew they could manipulate Pilate, because Pilate was very concerned about his poll numbers, they were able to get him to allow them, through the Roman government, to crucify Jesus. Mission accomplished. Now he's crucified. Now they get to wash their hands of it. Not us. No idea. Apparently, Pilate thought he ought to be crucified. They don't even have to accept responsibility. It's amazing. The Jews are not only powerless, but they're also controlled by cowardice. They knew the people loved Jesus. They knew the people would riot against them. And so this way, it was brilliant. They got to bring in the Romans. The Romans got to execute him by crucifixion because the Jews weren't allowed. And they got to wash their hands of it long before Pilate did. 
and say, well, I guess nobody's responsible for this. Certainly not us. It's brilliant. Oh, it's brilliant. It's brilliant and it's demonic and it's sinister, but it all fit within the overall plan of God, which is what's so remarkable. But the next part of the verse that says that he had to be killed is because crucifixion was required. And because crucifixion was required, the Romans had to get involved. And for the Romans to get involved, the Jews had to set up Jesus. Because the Jews couldn't kill him, and the Romans wouldn't kill him. The Jews couldn't crucify him, and the Romans couldn't care less if you've got someone traipsing around as your king, because what does it matter to them? But together they could get him crucified. Together they could blame each other. Together they could walk away scot-free with their hands washed of it. Together they fulfilled, ironically, what is in Acts chapter 2 and verse 23, perhaps the most important statement about this anywhere in the Scriptures. And if you struggle with the idea of God's sovereignty, if you struggle with the notion of His election, if you understand that He took from before the foundation of the world those who are going to be His and chose them and orders and orchestrates every single moment of all of humanity, if that's something that you understand, you'll glory in this. If you struggle with it, this might help you see it. Acts chapter 2 and verse 23, in the middle of sermons, great uh, I'm sorry, Peter's sermon to the Jewish people, he says this, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, the eternal covenant. It was God Himself within the context of the Godhead determining within themselves before creation that this is how the eternal covenant of redemption would unfold. They decided all of this. Oh, but does that give mankind freedom from responsibility? No way. Look what he says. Though it was his plan, his foreknowledge, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Lawless men coordinating with other lawless men to have Jesus crucified according to the sovereign plan of God. You see, all of that was necessary. All of that was foundational for him to say what he says next. Because it was the Jews and the Gentiles together that killed Jesus according to the sovereign plan of God in order that, don't miss this, Jews and Gentiles together can be saved by the sovereign plan of God. Amen? It's essential. Are the Jews to blame for his death? Yes. Are the Gentiles to blame for his death? Yes. Does God take some special interest in which particular nationality is to blame? No. What he's trying to symbolize there is that everyone is responsible. And everyone, if they put their faith in that crucified one can be redeemed because he rose again. That's the promise. And that's why at the end, he summarizes it all by saying this, and on the third day be raised. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, each one attributed with the act of raising Jesus from the dead God would raise him from the dead. The Spirit raises him from the dead. Jesus says, I lay down my life, I pick it up again. What it shows is what theologians refer to as the inseparable operations of the Trinity. 
There are no multiple wills of God. There is one plan, one will. It is true that as it unfolds in history, one particular person of the Trinity, maybe more specifically identified, is involved in that particular attribution of the will of God, but they are all together working, always as one, together, according to their eternal sovereign plan. And so Jesus Christ, raised from the dead, together, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit orchestrate the greatest miracle of all time. Now, my invitation to you today is very simple. I want you to remember that in the book of Romans, chapter 8, verse 11, we are reminded that the very same power that raised Jesus from the dead gives new life to the soul of those who are genuinely converted. And to those who are in Christ, He will also use that very same power to give you a new resurrection body in the new earth when He returns. So I invite you as a believer to remember that today. Remember that in your suffering. Remember that in your guilt. Remember that in your daily struggle against sin. Remember that when you are feeling like people are burdening you with more and more restrictions and regulations and law. I want you to remember that. I want you to rest. I want you to be encouraged by the resurrection as a sign that, yes, one day I too will be resurrected. But for those of you that are not believers today, not Christians, please, this is a humble invitation to you, not to clean yourself up and then come to God, but to come to God that He will not clean you up, but completely remake you. As the old hymn says, come ye sinners, poor and needy, weak and wounded, sick and sore. He stands ready to save you, full of pity, love, and power. You see, he has the desire to do it. He has the love to perform it, and he has the power to accomplish it. And the invitation is for you to put your faith in Him. And I, I can't make you do that. I can't, I can't um, convince you with an argument. I, I can't invite Dave to come up here and sing a really emotional song over and over and over and over and over until you come down. I can't hand you a card and say, fill this out. I can't say, pray this prayer. I can't ask you to walk an aisle. There's nothing that a person can do to another person to manipulate them into belief. If there was a way, then we would all need to be trained in that, and we should give up everything we can to do it. But thankfully, thankfully, (laughs) the way God designed it is that He does it. He gives new life to that dead spirit. He gives new life to that soul. Can I just say real quick to you parents, because you got your kids in here, parents, Can I just remind you about that truth and have you celebrate it? We all want our children to believe. We all want our children to become Christians. We we, we all desire that. Children, for a minute, let me talk to you. If you knew the way your parents grieve for you, weep over you, beg God to save you, if you knew how much they loved you and how much they would give up everything, they would give up everything that they own, they would give up their physical health, they would give up their lives if they could somehow guarantee that you would come to saving faith in Christ. If you could just understand that for a moment. But parents, be assured today that as much as the resurrection of Christ promises that future glory, 
It's that very same power that raised him that would raise up even your children if he sees fit to do it, not by any manipulation on our part, but by his sovereign choosing and in his perfect timing. And if there's one thing every parent knows is that it always takes too long. (laughs) But it doesn't mean we don't continue to ask him to raise up each and every one from that place of spiritual death to spiritual life. So you say, well, then what can you do, Pastor? You can't seem to do much. Well, here's what I can do. I can pray that God, in his mercy, would save those who came under the hearing of his gospel today, and that in his mercy he would draw you to himself, and that through that you would come to a knowledge of that truth, and that you would repent and believe and follow him in grateful obedience. Just like those disciples learned to do, not during his ministry, because we know that when he died on the cross, they scattered. But after he had resurrected and finally showed them who he was, and the Spirit came, and everything changed, the same can happen for you today. May God do that for his glory. Father in heaven, thank you for this simple word today. Certainly not able to do justice to the magnitude of this text, but I pray that today we would be able to see just a bit more clearly how important it is to remember that your sovereign plan was unfolding in every aspect, and that as we gather together today to celebrate your rising from the dead, that it is a historical reality. It is reasonable and rational, but there's so much more than that. It is spiritual and eternal. And it is also redemptive for those who put their faith in you. Help us to look forward, forward to the day when all is made right, when the curse is undone, and when the resurrection occurs. And we all, who are yours, gather together again to sing like we're about to right now, with hearts filled with praise for what you have done for us in Christ. For it's in his name we pray. Amen.